a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for these words. Words of peace, words of joy words of life. And so we open our hearts to you. We long for you to speak to us, to address us, speak deep to our souls, and lead us to the love of Jesus in this text. So give us ears to hear our great Father in heaven. By your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So since this is the the last Sunday before going on sabbatical, I, I had set this Sunday aside to have a free Sunday. When we finished Matthew last week, and I left a free Sunday to kind of talk about whatever for the last, you know, before I left for sabbatical, and uh, and I planned to give a charge to the congregation about loving and serving each other while we're gone, and I just I couldn't do that, um, so I chose something else because you know for me going on a sabbatical is really about a time of being and not doing. And I wanted to share some of that with you about being who we are in Christ, who we are before our Lord, and give you a little taste of what I'm hoping for in uh, these next three months. And because, you know, uh, being a pastor, much of your spiritual life is tied up with doing, you know. So every insight you have about the Bible, it's always about, oh, how am I going to apply that in a sermon? Or how is that going to apply into the ministry? And it's always kind of a work tied to, our, you know, my relationship with God. And so this, you know, this sabbatical is really a time um, to rekindle, rest in what it means for me just being a sinner who's been saved by Jesus. You know, that punk stoner kid who Jesus paid attention to and rescued and brought into his life and transformed his life. I get to, I'm, I'm going to be this punk stoner kid without the stoned part, okay, uh, is what we'll be doing, you know, and so a, a return to that first love, and so um, it's about being, it's about being with God and knowing God, and over the last couple of years, Psalm 16 has really been uh, that place for me 
of knowing God and communing with God and resting with God. And I, I think it was about two years ago that I memorized a psalm. And in our house, we have these woods across the street where they have all these trails going through the woods. And I always walk through the trails and I, I pray. Psalm 16 quite often, probably, I don't know, hundreds of times. And I've prayed it to the Lord. And, you know, I'd walk through the, you know, hear the birds chirping, and I look at the trees with all the moss on them. And, you know, I sit and just kind of stare at the wild woods and say, you know, these words, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You say that over and over, that the Lord is our goodness. The Lord is our life. And, you know, actually there always be people running through these trails and they see me staring at a tree, you know, saying, <laughs> you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. They, they must have think, well, who is this guy? And so, uh, so um, that's my dream for this sabbatical, simply to be with God and, uh, of course, to be with my family and to rest, but uh, to commune with the Lord. And I want to share some of that with you in Psalm 16, but also... Uh, one of the great guides for me in my whole Christian life since early on in my Christian life has been C.S. Lewis. And um, many of you know that I love C.S. Lewis and I quote C.S. Lewis in sermons. And, and, and also, I'm gonna, so over the sabbatical, I'll be rereading many books that I've already reread. And so in this sermon, I thought I would just share with you two things that I love, Psalm 16 and C.S. Lewis, and try to weave them together and into a, a meditation on what it means to know God, to live life with God. And there, I want to highlight four insights from Psalm 16. And so the first insight that we're going to look at this morning is this, that we know God through friendships. Okay, how do we know God? What does it mean to know God? The first is, surprisingly, is that we know God through friendships. And which, you know, I know that for many of you, the whole idea of having a relationship with God, to be commune with God is kind of an intimidating thought. You know, you might say, I hear people talking about communing with God, but I don't, have, I don't experience him that way. I don't have that experience. I'm not sure what they're talking about. And I think it's God's kindness that in a psalm about life with God... It, start, it doesn't start with some kind of mystical experience of union with God. It starts with this very earthy, human aspect of relationship, that um, a celebration of the people that God uses to draw us to himself. You see that there in verse 13. Look at what it says. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The saints in the land. Actually, that word saints, holy ones, literally what it means. In the Old Testament, the holy ones were often like angels that would come and they would visit people and they were messengers from God. And except the psalmist says these are saints in the land. There's like earthy angels or messengers, which are people that they come and they represent God's presence to us and they speak to us about God's truth and remind us of God's love and bring us uh, and, and, you know, stir in us a longing to know God. And the psalmist is saying, I love those people. I love to be with them. I love those opportunities. I love when God brings them to me. I love when I get to have those conversations. And, um, you know, if you've read any of uh, C.S., if you've read C.S. Lewis's autobiography or any of his biographies, you'll know that friendships were an important part of his life. Probably his most famous friendship was J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien uh, told 
Lewis about the Lord, brought him to the Lord, and it, that's, he was the one that converted Lewis on a late night conversation that they were having. They were out on a walk together, and they were talking about who Christ was, and then it was Lewis who actually pushed Tolkien to write the Lord of the Rings. You know, he was writing, he was like, oh, no one's going to want to read this, and Lewis says, you've got to finish this. This is a masterpiece. And of course, it was, it was really, Lewis was kind of the midwife who brought the Lord of the Rings in, into existence. And, um, and one of... Uh, and one of Lewis's last and best books is called The Four Loves. It has an amazing chapter on friendship. If you haven't read that, you've got to read that chapter. But in particular, there were two lifelong friends that were deeply formative in Lewis's life. And the first was Arthur Greaves, who was a neighbor of Lewis growing up. And actually, for much of his childhood, he didn't really know who Arthur Greaves was. He thought he was this kind of weird kid who lived on the other side of the stream or something like that. And then one day, Arthur Greaves got sick. And, and so Lewis went over to just kind of be polite and greet Arthur Greaves. And after they'd had a little you know, cordial chat, he was leaving. And he saw this book sitting on the nightstand, uh, The Myths of the Norsemen. And Lewis said, you like reading that? I'm, I didn't know anyone else liked reading Myths of the Norsemen. You know, Lewis like, loved that. And all it turns out, they had this special bond that they both liked, liked Norse myths. And so they started quoting all these myths, and they got this long conversation. And then it started a lifelong friendship, and where they, they loved all the same books. And they were so much alike, and they just had this kindred spirit. And so it was really interesting that he was bonded to Arthur Greaves. But then later in life, he befriended an, uh, another uh, Owen Barfield who was a, a brilliant literary critic who also had a love for poetry, but who loved to debate. And so here's this other friend who, as soon as they were friends, they start talking about it. Turns out they like the same books, but for all the different reasons. And Lewis would say, he's totally wrong on all these books. And so it started what he called the Great War. And they just fought with each other. And their letters they wrote to each other, just arguing, debating. And, uh, and so Barfield, when he published his, his second book, he dedicated it to Lewis and with this dedication that, Opposition is true friendship. And so with Greaves, there was this commonality, this bond. And with Barfield, there was this, this great war. But it was in the context of these rich friendships that Lewis's vision of God was formed. And the Bible recognized that a major component of our life with God is other people who come to us and speak to us. And he comes to us in them. But, you know, the thing about Lewis and each of his um, close friends was that they each had an identity outside of the friendship, independent of the friendship that they brought into the friendship that made it rich. And actually, it was really surprising to a lot of people that when they read Lewis talking about his friends, they were like, big part of your life was friendship? You know, I knew you in college, and all you did was read. I thought you were a hermit. I didn't know you knew how to be friends with anyone. And uh, that's because he, he had this rich, reflective life. And so friendship is a beautiful gift. You know, we know God with others and through others, but the psalm doesn't let us stay there. Psalm 16 says, it is possible to interact with people to talk to people, to long for community, but to never face God himself. So that might be some of you say, I long for community. I talk to people, but have, do we know God himself? And so this is the second point I want to talk to you about knowing God. So first, we know God through friendships. Second, we know God by going to a distant land. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, this past week, uh, there's a older pastor in our presbytery named Eric Irwin, who is also going on a sabbatical this summer. Actually, I'm going to spend a week with him up in uh, 
the kind of Okanagan, and we're, you know, we're just going to talk about pastor things. Or I, don't, I don't pray. I don't know what we're going to do, actually. And, uh, and, but he's, he's kind of an older mentor. He's been a mentor to both me and, and Daniel, and he sent out to his congregation a little note about the sabbatical, and Daniel said, oh, I think you'd like this. So he forwarded, Daniel got it, so he forwarded it along to me. And in this note, the pastor was saying that, you know, much of what being a pastor is is that, you know, basically every week you go into this distant land where God is. And then on Sundays, you come back from that distant land where you've been with God, and you bring good news of that land to, to all the people in your congregation. And he's like, that's basically what I'm doing on my sabbaticals. I'm going to this distant land for three months. I'm going to come back changed, and you know, I'm going to go tell you the good news of this land. And I love how Psalm 16 draws on that theme of God himself being like this promised land. God is a land. You see that in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines, it's the boundary lines of a land, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What David's referring to here in the Old Testament, when Israel came into the promised land, there were the, the 12 tribes of Israel, and they each got this kind of plot of land, except for the priests. The Lord said to the priests, you don't get a plot of land. What you get is me. That's what it says in Numbers, where he says, I am your portion, I am your inheritance, I am your land. And what David says is that we're all kind of like priests, that our ultimate inheritance, our ultimate reward, our ultimate promised land is God himself. And, uh, you know, my, my wife Shannon's always kind of dreaming of moving out into the county where, you know, we could have some land and where the kids could just run out in this kind of place of solitude and getting away and peace. And what the psalmist is saying here is taking that picture of a promised land of rest and peace and saying to the Lord, you are my fair land. You are that lot in the country where I feel at home. You are the far country that my heart longs for. That's a powerful thing to say to the Lord, you're my homeland. You're my homeland. And, um, you know, that theme has always been powerful to me. Right when I became a Christian, you know, I started reading through the New Testament, and I hardly understood any of it. I had a King James version, and I was trying to understand some of it. And whenever I found a verse that kind of struck me, I was so excited. And one of the early verses that really captured and struck a chord with me was in Hebrews 11. I want to read it to you. This is what it says. These, it's talking about the patriarchs and from the book of Genesis. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, I couldn't tell you why that verse (laughs) had such an effect on me, but there was something about this feeling like an exile and a stranger and longing for a homeland where I felt... uh, like I belonged, that I was made for. It stirred my soul deeply. And then I came across C.S. Lewis, and of course, the longing for a distant land was a major part of Lewis's imagination. You know, he's most famous for his Narnia stories about these children who traveled to a different world, to a, a different land. And in the third book that he wrote, it's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, 
and if, if you saw the movie, you can try to erase that from your memory and then go read the book and, and really be transported with the movie failed to do. And, uh, but in The Voyage of the Entree, there's a story about these people that are, are traveling across the seas to the end of the world, to Aslan's country. And it, as they go further and further along the sea and approach Aslan's country, it's absolutely beautiful as it talks about the sun and this calm sea. And um, when they come to the end of the world, they meet a lamb at the end of the world. And I want to read you a little, a little excerpt from, from the story. This is what it says. Come and have breakfast, said the lamb in its sweet, milky voice. Then they noticed for the first time that there was a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. They sat down and ate the fish, hungry now for the first time for many days. And it was the most delicious food they had ever tasted. Please, lamb, said Lucy, is this the way to Aslan's country? Not for you, said the lamb. For you, the door into Aslan's country is from your own world. What, said Edmund? Is there a way into Aslan's country from our world too? There is a way into my country from all the world, said the lamb. But as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself. Of course, Aslan's a lion, if you don't know the story. He turns into a lion. The lamb turns into a lion, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, will you tell us how to get into your country from our world? I shall be telling you all the time, said Aslan. But I will not tell you how long or short the way will be, only that it lies across a river. But do not fear that, for I am the great bridge builder. And what's deep in this story is this longing for a distant land, this homeland, Aslan's country. And being a Christian means being a person who has visited another world and has come back from that world changed. Being a Christian means visiting another world and coming back into this world a changed person. And some of you might say, I don't know if I've been to that country. I'm not sure I know how to experience what you're describing. Well, I'm going to try to give some answer to that toward the end of the sermon. But let me just briefly say that if you have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, then you have tasted that country. The Spirit is the power, the animating force of that world come into our world, into our bodies, into our community. That Spirit is here. You've tasted that country. But some of you may hear this and say, you know, okay, are you describing mysticism? Is that what this is? You know, and if you understand mysticism as a kind of working yourself up into a spiritual state where you have a vision of the divine, then no, that's not what I'm describing. You have to work really hard to try to make yourself spiritual. That's not what it is. You know, one of the things about Narnia is that the children who go there never get to choose when they go to Narnia. It's always Aslan chooses. He calls them. And then they don't get to talk to Aslan anytime they want. He meets them and meets them according to his own appointment. And uh, it's the same with our Lord. The experiences of intimacy with God come when he chooses, and they are his gift to us in his appointed time. And I should also say, you know, C.S. Lewis makes a point in another book where he says, you know, sometimes we think that the Holy Spirit is working when we have these kind of times of, you know, ecstasy where it's just like the Lord has moved us and we believe the Lord is there and he feels so present. But Lewis says those aren't often the times that the Holy Spirit is working most. Oftentimes in your suffering and in your disappointment, the Holy Spirit is doing his most careful work in our lives. So we need to be careful about when we say that the Holy Spirit is working. But there are certain means that God has appointed through which he tends to meet with us. It's through the word, 
You know, that happens sometimes for you here. You hear the words of God in new ways, and you say, God was there. Or you read the Bible on your own, and you say, God was there. Also in the sacrament, I've had many of you tell me that, that coming to the sacrament, you know that God is meeting with you there. It's also in prayer, that through prayer we meet with God. And it is in these three activities that the Holy Spirit is most active in our lives. And so this leads to a third point. So first we've seen we know God through friendships. God has placed these holy ones, these messengers, angels in the land. You know, they're people, okay? They're not angels. But they come and they, they bring God's presence to us and they lead us to the Lord. And then we know God by traveling to a, a, a distant country, that God himself is this, this homeland that we long for. But the third point I want to say from this passage is we know God through the inner working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The inner working of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at Psalm 16, look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. This this has been a beautiful verse for me. I mean, what a promise that the Lord gives us counsel. And, um, you know, many of you, you might be in situations right now in your life where you have to make hard decisions. Maybe there's hard conversations that you have to have with people in your life. And to hear, to say that the Lord is your counselor, you know how many of you might say, you know, I wish I had someone to talk to to figure out this problem who could help me process it. And to find that the Lord really does give you his spirit to give you his wisdom to help you make decisions. And this is what life with God looks like. And actually, just this last week, I was talking with two friends and one of the friends is going to have to have a difficult, he had a difficult conversation in his work that he was trying to figure out how to handle it. And then we just prayed together. And some of you know this. When you're having this conversation and you're wrestling, what should we do, what should we do? And you're like, you know, we haven't prayed. Let's pray together. And you pray and everyone opens their eyes and you're like, we all know what to do. It just became clear. Because this is real. The Holy God says, if, if you ask for counsel, for wisdom, what doesn't God want to give to his children wisdom to act wisely in the world and to honor him? And if we ask for his spirit, wouldn't he give his spirit? He really does that. And this is what life with God looks like. And I can't tell you how easy it is to just go through processing with people, finding out what they think, and then go and make a decision. You never stop and say, Lord, you are my counsel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. It's a great promise. But actually, you know, there's another half of that verse that, you know, as I mentioned, I've, been, I've memorized this verse of a couple, of, this passage a couple of years ago, and I've been, I don't know, maybe I've said this passage a hundred times, and I never really understood this part of it, the second half of verse seven, where it says, in the night also, my heart instructs me. What is it talking about? In the night also, my heart instructs me, and I still am not sure what it's talking about, but I had a, a thought about it. This is a little side rabbit trail, if that's okay. But I, I thought, I had a new thought of what, what this might be talking about. Um, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast, the Tim Ferriss show. I mentioned that I listened to that. And um, there was this woman on the Tim Ferriss show who's, a, a, she's a, like an internationally known graphic designer. And she was, had all these questions that people had written in asking about her life and her habits and how did she become so successful. And one of the questions was, what do you like to do on the weekend? And on this show, it's always these like really 
highly capable people and they always have something interesting hobby like jujitsu or you know surfing you know and so I'm thinking what does she do on her weekend it's gonna be something really cool that I don't know how to do and I can't do on the weekend and then and then she answers and she says I love to sleep <laughs> I was like sleep she likes to sleep She's like I really like a nice comforter and pillows and stuff I was like you like to sleep but then the reason she said it is because you know when you're sleeping your brain is like regenerating and taking all this information and organizing it and she says my most creative ideas happen when I'm sleeping and so I know that when I'm sleeping like amazing work is happening I was like that's and actually I, I've shared with many of you that I was I was studying math before I was going to be a pastor I was in graduate school and every week we'd have these 15 proofs that we had to figure out on our own and then come and present in the class and I would spend all day on a proof and I'm just trying to I can't figure it out I can't figure it out and I can't figure out what the secret is to this proof and then I go to sleep and I have some weird dream and like the answer to the proof would be in the dream. And then I'd wake up and go write down the proof and Shane would freak out. And, and it was like, oh, that happens in your sleep. And then to realize, imagine we have the Holy Spirit in our minds, in our souls. And this is saying that even in our sleep, the Spirit is forming our thoughts. And, and also it was like, wow, you know, for some of you who are like, I'm wasting time sleeping. This was liberating for me, you know, to say I'm not wasting time. Uh, Psalm, 120, uh, Psalm 127 says that the Lord gives to his beloved sleep is a blessing. And so here, the Holy Spirit, this is what knowing God looks like, is to depend on God for counsel and hard decisions. And to have the Spirit living inside of us, not just when you're awake. But I want to say one more thing about Psalm 16. There are a lot of little, I, I, I could spend a couple hours talking about this psalm, but... Um, one other thing I wanted to point out about what life in the spirit looks like, you'll notice that at certain parts of the psalm, the person changes, the pronouns change. So for example, if you look at verse five, it says, the Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. So it's in third person, I'm talking about the Lord. I'm telling you that the Lord is my portion of my cup. And then the next line, it changes. Like the psalmist was talking about the Lord and then he faces the Lord and he says, I'm gonna speak directly to you. And he says, you hold my lot. One of the most important sentences the Holy Spirit will ever teach you to say to God is you hold my lot. The Holy Spirit, I mean, this, whatever comes, to say to God, whatever comes, I receive it from your hand. And I believe that whatever it is, I have a beautiful inheritance. Imagine to say that. You know, to start your day, to, to have a day where you say, whatever comes in this day, whatever hostile people come, whatever difficult people, whatever conflicts, I receive it from your hands. Whatever comes into my life, I trust you. You are my beautiful inheritance. And this is what it means to cast our anxieties on the Lord. How can I be anxious when everything comes from the good Lord? Everything comes from that distant and beautiful land. You know, I've been, uh, I've been meeting with a counselor the, the last couple months, and um, one of the phrases that he keeps bringing up is he talks about how valuable it is in, you know, family settings, in work settings, in, you know, friendship settings, is what he calls a non-anxious presence. 
And he says, you know, in all kind of little communities, all of us have a certain amount of anxiety that we carry around with us that causes us to be very productive and very defensive, and we react to certain things that people do because of this anxiety. And he says one of the best things to come into a home or come into a workplace or to come into a relationship is a non-anxious presence. The Holy Spirit trains us in a non-anxious presence when we learn to say to the Lord, you hold my lot. Why would I be anxious? You bring me to the good land. Okay? So here's three things so far about what is life with God? What is knowing God looks like? First of all, it involves people that God brings into our life. It involves kind of traveling to this distant, uh, this country ourselves that I've been to that land where God is. And then to have the Holy Spirit living in us, giving us God's counsel and training us to say, you hold my lot. One last point I want to make from Psalm 16 is this. We know God in the longing for joy. We know God through longing for joy. And uh, for C.S. Lewis, joy was one of the most important themes in his life. Uh, His autobiography was called Surprised by Joy. And uh, that story tells about his path. He grew up in a Christian home, and then he became an atheist. And then in his 30s, he... Uh, became a Christian and uh, came back to the Lord. And he tells how throughout his life, both as an atheist and as a Christian, he had these experiences that stabbed his soul with awe and wonder. And they came at times that were unexpected. And so, for example, he's talking about his young life. That You know, I mentioned the myths, the Norse myths. And why he loved those Norse myths is because they had this effect on him that he didn't even know what it was. And so he says his, one of his early encounters with joy, this is how he describes it. He says, there came a moment when I idly turned the pages of the book and found the unrhymed translation of Tegner's Droppa and read, so he reads these words, I heard a voice that cried, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. I knew nothing about Balder, but instantly I was uplifted into huge regions of northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described, except that it is cold, spacious, severe, pale, remote. And then, as in the other examples, found myself at the very same moment already falling out of that desire and wishing I were back in it. It's a strange thing. He reads this little bit of poetry, and it transports him to this, you know, this vision of northernness that he calls it. And he says, I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described. This experience became the pursuit of Lewis's whole life. What was that? What was happening to me? In there. And through his pursuit of joy, he found that joy is something that as soon as you look at it, it disappears. If you try to make a happy life and you try to say, what is happiness? What is joy? If I can kind of figure out a technique to make it for myself, it will evade you. It just doesn't work like that. And he also found that the joy that we experience in this life and this earth is largely a longing. It is a longing. It's like hearing a song or an echo from that distant land. And that's why, as Lewis would say, you know, if this summer you go up to Park Butte and you hike up to Park Butte and you see, a, you know, the vision of uh, Mount Baker and it's breathtaking, he says that Baker doesn't satisfy your deepest longings. It makes your longings stronger. 
It makes your longing stronger. That's what joy is in this life, is it's a desire, a deepening desire. It is a hunger for something. And these stabs of joy, this inconsolable longing for Lewis, he found out, were not pointing to something, but to someone. It was a longing for someone. And that's precisely what Psalm 16 says to us. You hear this description of longing and joy. Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Then you skip down to verse 11, which now addresses God directly. It says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now I know that at least some of you, maybe most of you, know the experience the psalmist is describing here. You can say, I've felt God's presence. I can't control it. But there have been times where I have known that I have met with God. I know what that longing is. And joy is ultimately the longing for an experience of knowing God and beholding his beauty. But I can't just end there. Because someone may hear this sermon and argue, that's not what Psalm 16 is about. To say that this is, you know, many theologians throughout history have said, you know what, the person speaking in Psalm 16 is not us. It's Jesus who's speaking. The Psalms are all Jesus songs. They're not our songs, they're Jesus songs. And actually, if you look there at uh, verse 10, look at what it says in verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That verse is quoted twice in Acts, Acts 2 and Acts 13. And the early apostles said, that was about Jesus' resurrection. This whole psalm is not about us, it's about Jesus. And so many people say, you know, it's a lot of pressure to put on us, that we have to have this experience to, you know, experience God. It's not us who does that, it's Jesus who does that. And this week I was wrestling with that question. Is this psalm for us or is it about Christ? And I was walking those trails that I was telling you about, and I was saying the psalm, and all of a sudden it struck me. These are Jesus' words, and I'm saying them. This is Jesus' relationship to his Father, and I've all of a sudden been brought into it through the psalm. It's like my mouth was like, I was picturing it like I was in Jesus, and my words were his words, and I was experiencing what his life is like. And that's what the whole gospel is, is that Jesus is sharing his life with the Father, with us, that supreme joy, and that now his words are dwelling in me. And so my invitation to you this summer, as I go on sabbatical, (laughs) is to think about being, not doing, but being. And that this life is something that Jesus wants to share with you, that you might know that he makes known to us the path of life. In his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Great Father, You are our chosen portion and our cup. You hold our lot. 
The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. You are our inheritance. Teach us what it is to know you and to be known by you. Lead us into a, as a community into that distant land. Deepen that hunger in us to know you. I pray for those who are here who would say, I don't know if I've experienced, I've been to that country. I don't know if I've experienced the Spirit's work or stepped into that world. I pray that in your sovereign care and love, you would go and meet each one of those individuals who are here. Give us ears to hear you. Give us eyes to see you, we pray in Christ's name.